Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So that's nice. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. A few passages, a few verses here, but there's a couple of um, uh, kind of modern colloquialisms that we have in our, in our verbiage today that you'll probably recognize. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Does that sound super hot to anyone else, or is it just me? It does to you guys as well? Take it down a little bit, Aiden. Could you try to? I just, just got to get it in my ears real quick. That's a little better, if everybody can still hear me or not. Uh, so did I say the grass withers, the flower fades, whatever our God stands forever? I don't want to miss that, so I'm going to make sure I say it. I'll say it twice just to make sure. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that, are among, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Not scripture, right? Declaration of independence. Very important words written down for us. Very powerful documents in our, a very powerful document in our history as Americans, And there's this recognition from our founding fathers that humanity possesses just intrinsically as being made in the image and likeness of God of having certain unalienable rights. You know, it's fun. Google unalienable. See what the word unalienable means. You know what the, you know what the definition according to Google of unalienable is? The same as inalienable. That's all it says. <laughs> it's like, well, that doesn't help me at all. <laughs> it just means they're unrevocable. They are rights that exist, unalienable rights. These are rights that cannot be taken away. And they recognize that there were certain rights that just as people made in the image and likeness of God, just from a very bland almost, just understanding of the world as we are created by God, that we have certain intrinsic rights that just there there are things that are guaranteed for us for the lives of the citizens of of this great country that ought to be recognized at all times there's absolutely something good and true about these words when we consider them and the the, the reality of the imago dei the image of god that all of humanity has but something has happened in our culture that has bled over into the our, the conception of the Christian. We are consumed today with our focus on rights. This is what I deserve. I have rights, 
I am an American, and because I have these rights, you therefore are in the wrong, and then you must pay because I have rights. And what's sad is not only has that taken over, which we do have, I mean, I'm not trying to throw away the idea that we have unalienable rights. We do have them. But it becomes this absolute controlling, monolithic worldview that all we can begin to focus on is that I make sure that my rights are recognized. And it's taken our culture by storm. And what's sad on top of that is it's invading even the Christian church where we begin to be these places that we gather together, churches around the nation are gathered together today, but they are filled with people who still think the main point of the church is recognizing my personal autonomous rights. I must have it my way. You must recognize me and all my authenticity and individual, uh, you know, just wonderfulness and, 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 and recognize me. The trouble... The trouble is that this is not the primary pursuit of the king's people. This is not the primary pursuit of the king's people. Remember all along we've said that the Sermon on the Mount is this uh, how the king's people live like the king's people. So our big idea this morning, getting right into it, is that the king's people display the king's graciousness by extending that grace to those around them. The king's people display the king's graciousness by extending that grace to those around them. I got kind of nervous when Jim, he says, well, this morning we were going to talk about Matthew 5, and I've been on vacation this week, and he was on vacation last week, and so we haven't like sat down and got to go through the notes, and I thought, I hope he doesn't say something about Matthew chapter 5 I'm not prepared to say. <laughs> but thankfully... Thankfully, the text is so obvious, he's saying the exact point of what the, the passage is about this morning. Is this realization, we sing Jesus, thank you. There's this overwhelming realization of how gracious our God has been to us who once were his enemies, who once had his wrath against us. And this passage is speaking not about then the rights of the king's people, but the posture of the king's people to extend that same grace to those around them. As they've been given grace, as they've been shown mercy, as they've been loved, they then turn and look at the world and think, how can I make sure you get in line to best serve me? But how can I posture myself to best love and serve you that you likewise would know the grace and mercy of my incredible king? So the exposition of the text here, Jesus, he's quoting this idea, equal punishment for crime. And we have this same idea in our world today, right? That the punishment should fit the crime. We have phrases like cruel and unusual punishment, which is the general idea that if you shoplift chewing gum, you probably shouldn't get life in prison, right? That's a punishment that does not fit the crime or something ridiculous along those lines. Um, if this, if you, uh, you don't get the death penalty for a traffic violation, right? Capital punishment for a parking violation probably is, is a little over the top. And so this, this idea found in many places in the Old Testament and then Jesus uh, backing it up really in the New Testament. Uh, this is not the Sermon on the Mount and this um, extrapolation of Jesus of the Old Testament law is not him saying, 
in the Old Testament, God was like this, but now we're like this, right? He's not abrogating or getting away, doing away with the law. Jesus, right at the beginning, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There's this, there's this uh, intrinsic internalization and intensification of the law. And so there is to be appropriate punishment for appropriate crime. That's just plain on the, on the surface of the text. Places like Exodus chapter 21, Deuteronomy chapter 19, Leviticus 24, all are giving um, authority to the government, essentially, to the authorities in power to punish the evildoer. And that's a good thing. Just, our God is a just God, and just a punishment for crime is, is, a, is a, a gift that God has given to authorities to, for the benefit of the, of the community, of the governed. Um, but the trouble begins to enter into society when instead of seeing that as a governmental authority, we begin to internalize that as a personal uh, sort of authorization for your own personal private vendetta and revenge. The king's people are not to live in their own personal wild, wild west where we say, you wronged me in this way, well, guess what? Eye for eye, for tooth for tooth. So you wronged me, guess what? I'm going to make sure you get the same wrong back that you wronged me. So I'm going to take vigilante justice. You said something nasty about me, well, guess what? Eye for an eye, I now get to say something nasty about you, and it's totally okay because we know an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You steal from me, you do whatever, I'm going to repay you in exactly the same way because an eye for an eye. That is not how the king's people live. Instead, there's this Christian ethic laid down in the example of Jesus. You know, we see a foreshadowing of this back in the Beatitudes where Jesus is laying out all these blessedness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's not the weak. It's not those who can't get revenge if they wanted to. It's those who, who, who intentionally put themselves low. Blessed are the meek, those who put themselves in the back seat, those who don't insist upon their way, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus takes this law, laid down, as I've said many times in the Old Testament, and he again, he intensifies it, and he internalizes it in its application. Understanding the text, this is the way the Sermon on the Mount really is. It isn't that difficult, honestly, to understand what Jesus is saying. It's not the comprehension of it that's difficult. It's the application that's like, oh, man, okay. That's, uh, that's where it really gets difficult. We can try to say, this is so hard to understand, if we just don't want to agree with what it says. But honestly, it's not that hard to understand. Verse 39 I say to you, do not, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, you, you recognize the saying, uh, turning the other cheek, that's where this comes from, right? It's a bit, even though it's, that's, that's approached and gotten into modern culture, just secular culture will say, turning the other cheek, it's a reference to this passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This idea that when you are disgraced when you are insulted because the slapping on the right cheek is 
you know, it's as if it's a, it's a backhanded slap. Why, why does he mention on the right cheek? Well, most people being right-handed, sorry, left-handers out there, I don't know how many of you there are, a few of you, I apologize. But the majority of the population being right-handed, if I was going to, I would never slap Rich, but if I were going to, and I hit him on the right cheek, I would have to backhand him. I would not hit him on the left cheek, which would be more of an aggressive, like, I'm actually fighting you, I'm mad. There's a sense of, like, um, insult to it, to be backhanded by somebody. It's not only, a, it's not only an act of aggression, it's also a, shut up now. I said, come on. <laughs> you got it on the left cheek with your back in your hand. You're just trying to disprove me. I like it, actually. Actually, yeah, you, should, you should try that. But uh, not slapping your mother, but checking what the pastor's saying. Test everything you hear. I like that. But the idea is there's this dismissiveness to it. It's an insulting slap. So there's this, it's this supremely insulting action. But instead of the natural reaction being throwing back an insult, it's absorbing the blow. It's not necessarily saying, um, you know, oh, well, please, you know, and then provoking the person to further violence. Like that's, the Bible's not condoning saying, hey, let's just go ahead and why don't you beat me up all the way. But it's a, it's a language of saying absorb that blow and, and, and take that into yourself. There's this obligation. Instead of a natural reaction of giving a blow in return, the call of meekness, not weakness, not that you couldn't slap them back. It's not, being, it's not about being weak. It's about meekness. The obligation of mercy and grace is to not return evil for evil, but to consent to the blow. To give the blow back is to almost admit that you would like the evildoer who has done evil towards you. You yourself are a likewise evildoer returning the evil for the evil act that was done to you. The same for the person who takes your tunic. Just look here at verse 40. Now, we don't have tunics and cloaks, uh, but the tunic was the kind of the undergarment that was uh, typically worn, a longer garment, uh, you know, wool or linen as just an undergarment that was um, sometimes given as security or payment. And then there's actually a cloak that was worn outside of it that, um, I didn't put the reference down, but excuse me, I think it's Leviticus, that actually made it illegal to take someone's coat for security because this, out, this outer coat was so important, people would use it for warmth, they'd use it at night for as a blanket, that it would endanger the person to take their, their outside cloak. But here Jesus is saying, if they want to take your tunic, that then you would also say, here's my tunic, and here also is my cloak. That you're going above and beyond the person who's actually oppressing you, you are trying to not return evil for evil, but to actually give what is demanded of them and give more. Same in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. How does someone force you to go one mile? Well, actually, this was a Roman uh, rule, a Roman law that they had of conscription of service, that um, if I had a bunch of work to do and stuff to be carried, I could conscript you, I could, I could enforce you to come along with me as a ruler over top of you, I couldn't make you go more than one mile. That was kind of the limit of people's like decency. Like, okay, I'll carry this for a mile, but if you make me go further than that, then we're going to have trouble. And you actually can see um, Simon of Cyrene there at the, the Passion narrative that Jesus is carrying his cross, right, but he can't make it. And so the Roman guards, they turn to Simon of Cyrene and they say, hey, 
they conscript his service, carry this cross for Jesus. That's this kind of idea, that there was this ability to, if we were out in the street, the authorities could say, hey, we need this hauled, and you're going to carry it. And Jesus says, if they compel you to take it a mile, when that mile gets done, carry it the extra mile. You've heard the phrase, going the extra mile. <laughs> this, this passage is full with all sorts of modern phrases. Going the extra mile is where this comes from, is that even though these authorities are conscripting your service, forcing you to do this, that you actually would go one step further. And then lastly in 42, giving to the one who begs from you, not refusing the one who would borrow from you. The call is to give and give freely, even when there is no possibility of repayment. You're not giving to get back, but you're freely giving. That's the general breakdown of the passage. I, mean, I felt like we needed to go through it because we need to read the text, but it's not really all that hard to see this radical call for the king's people to extend grace, the king's graciousness that they've been shown to those around them. It's not really all that hard to comprehend, but it is incredible in its application. <laughs> to think about this high standard. Now, just as an aside, this is not a repudiation of all means of force in matters of self-defense and acts of justice uh, enforced by a government. Like you see people take one end of the spectrum, swing the, the pendulum swings from, uh, from one end to the other where we go to total pacifism. And I don't think that that's a ditch that people go to with this text, which I don't think is justifiable when you read the rest of Scripture. Self-defense for your life or the life of your loved ones or your neighbors is not prohibited in this text. The actions of governments to restrain the evildoer, read Romans chapter 13, the first eight verses or so there. Paul talks about the authority of the government, God-given, to restrain the evildoer with force if necessary. The actions of governments to engage in justified war, not prohibited either. I, uh, Jim reminded me, I forgot that um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his cost of discipleship, he actually walks through the Sermon on the Mount, which is written, I, I think, in 37. So it's, it's a few years before uh, Hitler's on the rise, but he's not necessarily, we're not full on into World War II. And, and Bonhoeffer, in Cost of Discipleship, takes on this incredible pacifism stance that you find out when, uh, he's in, when Hitler gets his rise to power, he, he recognizes this is someone that we actually should get rid of for the good of the, the world, essentially. So he has kind of a change of heart on this pacifism from this, from this text. But anyway, now that we've spent some time understanding this section, we get to this issue. How in the world can people be called to actually walk this out? This is, I mean, this is, this is huge. To, to live, and especially in the culture that, like I said when we started out, surrounded in this, cons consumed with getting what we deserve. The world better know what I'm owed and give it to me, or the world is going to hear about it and they're going to pay. You better know what I deserve and give it to me, or I'm for sure going to let you know about it. That is not the call from Jesus. How then can we find the strength to lay down our rights and live humbly and meekly in our world today? Four ways. First is by looking at Christ's example himself. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We look at the example of Jesus. 
Now, the example of Jesus, Jesus is a funny thing. Because at one level, it is, it is absolutely aspirational. It calls you to something incredible. But it's also crushing because none of us are perfect like Jesus. <laughs> and the way that he walks out his life is never going to be done without sin by us in the way that Jesus was. But yet still, as Peter says in this letter, he is to be an example for us. So if we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, this is talking about, you can see from your heading there, submission to authority. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Not returning the evil for the evil that you've suffered, but enduring it. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Truly incredible. We can look at, firstly, the character of Christ. Consider his meekness. He does not retaliate in all that he suffers, but he submits himself to God and his purposes. He knew that he was serving some greater purpose. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, submitted himself to undeserved scorn and unjustifiable treatment. We are not called to something unknown by our God. Jesus, the character of Christ, himself endures this suffering. He lives meekly. So we can look at Christ's character, looking at his example. Secondly, we can look at Christ, look at God's example in our own redemption. Romans chapter 5. This is why we sang Jesus, thank you. But you look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, very familiar text. But speaking about our redemption, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now listen to verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies of God. We were, in, uh, we were at war with God. We, had, we were absolutely had anger towards God. We were his enemies, caught up in sin and in rebellion. What does God do with those who are in rebellion against him? What does God do for those who are in rebellion against him? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We can be gracious when mistreated because we know that God himself was gracious to us though we mistreated him and, and scorned his glory and his value. While we were enemies of God, loving ourselves and dismissing his greatness, seeking to rob him of his glory, God's action was to rescue us by sending his own son to save us. This is incredible mercy in the face of ill treatment. And if God so treats us, how can we, after seeing this, turn and behave more sternly to those whose ill treatment is only towards sinners like us? <laughs> if, if, if the holy and righteous God who was scorned by sinners turns and graciously saves them out of their sins, how can we, sinners ourselves, wronged by other sinners, demand something that God himself says, I'm going to serve you by extending grace. The king's people are called to extend his graciousness towards us to the world around us. So we can look at the character of Christ. We can look at the love of God. Thirdly, we can look at the sovereignty of God. We can, we can live this way by knowing that God's perfect justice will not be thwarted. We can look at Christ's example, we can look God, at God's example in redemption, and we can live this way by knowing that God's perfect justice will not be thwarted. Flip back a few chapters to Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Very familiar, you can hear the language from Paul. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. No one will ultimately escape the perfect justice of God. If there truly is wrong done to you, as a believer in Jesus, you can overlook the wrong because you know that in the final analysis, either that wrong is forgiven by the blood of Jesus or will find perfect justice and punishment in their eternal state. You know that no one escapes, no one gets off with free in this world from their penalties. Either Jesus takes them or they suffer underneath them. And so we can, we can let wrongs done against us, we can forgive them, we can extend grace because we know that it is not our place to exact perfect justice. We will get it wrong. He will not. We will get it wrong. He will not. The king's people trust the king and his purposes, his justice, over insisting on their own. So how do we live this way, looking at Christ's example, looking at God's example and his redemption by his love given to those who were against him, by knowing that God's perfect justice will not be thwarted? And lastly, how can we live this way? By knowing that we are not our own and that having Christ is enough. The king's people can extend grace and mercy because 
the meaning and goal of life has been recalibrated for them. What I want most in this world, when you come to faith in Christ, when you see the beauty of being his, it recalibrates what you want in this world. Your main goal is not to get your way. Your main goal is not that everyone recognize all that I deserve and give it to me. Your priorities have been recalibrated. Our main desire is not for our own recognition or glory. They didn't recognize how amazing I am. How dare they? That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's not our goal. They didn't give me what I deserved. I'm going to make sure somebody finds out about that. That is not the calibration of the Christian life. We do not occupy first place in our life. Jesus does. Our wants and desires for ourselves do not sit in the driver's seat of our lives. Our wants and desires for ourselves do not sit in the driver's seat of our life. Bonhoeffer says in, in his cost of discipleship, to leave everything behind at the call of Christ is to be content with him alone and to follow only him. By his willingly renouncing self-defense, the Christian affirms his absolute adherence to Jesus and his freedom from the tyranny of his own ego. I love that line. The tyranny of his own ego. Life is not about serving me. How are the king's people freed up to live this way? They do not have to get their own way because they already have what is best and ultimate in the having of Jesus as their king. That the true king is our king. We do not, we have no treasure. We have no blessing left to search for. We have been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? Ephesians chapter 1 there. We have every blessing in Christ already. How can we be so filled with the goodness of God and yet seek at, after trifles for ourselves? We have the favor of God upon us that through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ that the light of his countenance is towards us. Now he's promised to be with us, to watch over us, to secure us all the way home. And if we have that sort of a guarantee, how can we be caught up in how people in this world make sure that they give us our due as well? We have the blessing of our God and Savior. We would rather not get our way, extend mercy to someone else, and have that open the joy for, door for their joy in Jesus than to get our way for meager personal justice. You know, you think about that going of the extra mile, the Roman guard who has conscripted person after person after person to carry this load for the mile, and he meets someone who at the end of that mile says, you know what, I'll, I'll go a mile further with you. Think of the, the, the shift in the mind, what is, what is wrong with you? <laughs> You've done your mile, it's good to go. And the person says, no, I will serve farther. The person who sues for the tunic, and you say, you know what, here's my tunic, here's my cloak as well. If you're in need, I'd rather you have it and me go without for you to have it. Think of the shift in, in, in the mind that that causes for those that see this, for those that, that are the recipient of this incredible grace. We would rather not get our way. Extending mercy to someone else, showing abundant grace and love and care for them, 
Because if that opens the door for them to see the grace of God, to share, why would you go the extra mile? Well, let me tell you about a God who, when I was his enemy, sent his son to rescue me. Why would you, after my insults to you, why would you be so gracious towards me? Well, let me tell you about my God who, after I insulted him time and time and time again, extended his grace towards me. And I would rather, we would rather as the king's people have that opportunity to say, here's our gracious God. I want, I'd rather you know him than me get why my just, what I deserve. We would rather not get our way so that would open the door for their joy in Jesus rather than our meager personal justice. The king's people show the incredible blessing of the king's favor by valuing it, his favor, over all other blessings. For these reasons, Christ's example, God's example of redemption, God's perfect justice will not be thwarted, and that we are not our own, that we have Christ and it is enough. Christ calls his people to live differently in our fallen and broken world. Christian friendships ought to look different. Christian marriages ought to look different. They have a different foundation for the way they relate to each other, extending grace and mercy and forgiveness. Christian employees and co-workers ought to look different. Christian citizens ought to be different. Christian community members ought to be different. Christian neighbors ought to love different. Through our own strength and our own conviction, we cannot do this. But by God's mercy, with eyes full of the blessing that we have in Christ, the Holy Spirit will help us and guide us down the path to honoring Him and living for Him more and more by His grace as we seek to be the King's people, extending His great grace and mercy to us and through us out into the world in the joy for all that He has done for us. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes first and foremost to see this grace for ourselves. We know that it is, it is pointless to try to set up a checklist of behaviors that I ought to keep as I leave this place if we first and foremost don't see the incredible grace and mercy that you have poured out upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, give us eyes to see that ultimately so that then as we walk out these doors, knowing the grace of God coming to us, that God, it would flow through us to our neighbors, putting our own desires and wants and wishes and demands aside that our neighbor might know the goodness and the grace of our great God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.